This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because I get to talk to both of the authors of a fascinating book titled The Sun King at Sea, Maritime Art and Galley Slavery in Louis XIV's France, um, which examines a really interesting artistic mode or practice, really a whole bunch of different kinds of art, um, that showcase a piece of French history that I think a lot of us are probably not aware of, um, and there's good reasons we're probably not aware of it, that I think we're going to get into the discussion. Thankfully, this book is gorgeous and incredibly detailed with its historiography and information, so I'm very pleased to welcome both of the authors of the book, Gillian Weiss and Meredith, Meredith Martin, to the podcast to tell us about all the things in this book. Well, probably not all, but some of the things in the book at least. Gillian and Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Could you maybe start us off by each introducing yourselves and explaining not just why you decided to write the book, but also write it together? Sure, absolutely. So I'm Meredith Martin. I'm an art history professor at New York University. And my research focuses mainly on French art and empire from the late 17th to the 19th centuries. And I'm Gillian Weiss. I'm a history professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And my research focuses on early modern France, uh, its relations with the Islamic world, as well as piracy and slavery in the Mediterranean. So in terms of why this book and why we wrote it together, um, Jillian and I, obviously, as you've just heard, have related research interests, but we've also been close family friends for a very long time. And so we knew about each other's work that way as well. And I would say it was a little bit more than 10 years ago uh, when I was preparing for an undergraduate art history lecture on Versailles and kind of frantically searching through Google images for something to put in my PowerPoint. And I came across this unfamiliar image from the ceiling of the Hall of Mirrors. It just kind of popped up on my screen. And actually, that's now become the cover image for our book. But I didn't know what it was. I could tell it was some kind of port scene uh, with ships in the background, 
there was cargo being unloaded, um, and there was a picture of France's King Louis XIV, who was subjugating three chained dark-skinned figures who are wearing turbans. Um, I didn't know, as I said, I didn't know what the painting represented, but I thought my friend Jillian might know, since I knew she had written a book on maritime piracy in the early modern Mediterranean, and specifically on the enslavement of Frenchmen by North African pirates who were nominally under the control of the Ottoman Empire. And indeed, when I emailed Jillian, uh, she identified the picture um, and these chained figures as representing the reverse phenomenon of so-called esclave Turk, or enslaved Turks, who had been captured or purchased to row a new fleet of galley ships that Louis XIV, who ruled France from 1660 to 1715, had established as a way to combat pirates and dominate trade in the Mediterranean, while also promoting himself as a global conqueror in the mold of Christian medieval crusaders and ancient rulers. So Jillian and I both became really fascinated by this image, and we realized that, in fact, there was a huge visual and material corpus, um, multimedia body of imagery and, and of objects around the Sun King's Mediterranean gallery, galleys and um, related to his enslavement of Turks that had not been explored in either of our fields. And so that's what prompted us to seek out more examples, to think about what they meant, uh, and ultimately to write this book together. Um, and I would say that what we realized in the course of our research is that neither of us could have written this book alone. Uh, we, brought, we both brought really different kinds of knowledge, different expertise, different skills to the collaboration. And I think while it was challenging sometimes, there was also a really huge pleasure in learning from each other and trusting each other. And I think ultimately we feel like the book is more than the sum of its parts. Hmm. Brilliant. What a great origin story. Um, and what a wonderful way to kind of stumble on something and go, hang on a second, I know who I can ask, um, <laughs> and then see what results from that. So getting into then the uh, sub, the content really of the book, um, you've just given us some idea of kind of why we have this population of enslaved Turks in France. Like, wh wh where is this coming from? Why is this being done? Can you tell us maybe a bit more about why the French state wanted a population of enslaved Turks? Um, and did these reasons change over time at all? So as Meredith just noted, um, Louis XIV and his promoters poured tremendous resources into building up France's fleet of galleys. And they wanted fighting ships that would help France dominate the Mediterranean Sea um, but at the same time, they also wanted to make the French king seem like a new Julius Caesar. And at the same time, kind of a new Saint-Louis, the former king, Louis IX, who died on crusade near Tunis. And so the reason, especially um, in for several decades in the second half of the 17th century, that the crown really sought enslaved Turks as rowers was for you know similarly practical, but also symbolic reasons. Um, first of all, there was a conviction that was pretty much shared throughout the Catholic Mediterranean that Muslims, and particularly Muslims from North Africa, made the best galley slaves. Um, they supposedly had the right physiques and the right propensity for pulling an oar. Um, and in fact, if you look at French dictionaries from the period, um, they often record the phrase, strong as a Turk. Um, and the point is that the crown wanted the strongest rowers that they could get on the galleys. But a second 
symbolic reason that the crown wanted enslaved Turks on its galleys had to do with the longstanding commercial agreements, um, which Europeans call capitulations, that France maintained with the Ottoman Empire. And as Meredith and I argue in our book, subjugating Muslims was one way of distracting attention from what some European rivals like to call France's impious alliance. Um, that said, you know, procuring and enslaving um, and exploiting uh, in, uh, Turks was expensive and it was risky. Um, and so when interest from Versailles began to wane, it was mostly naval officers in Marseille who continued to push for maintaining the galley fleet um, and its rowing force um, for the sake of their own glory um, and utility, um, their own sort of um, as a way in part, not only to you know, build a better France, but also to justify their own uh, existence. Hmm. All right. So that's kind of the, I suppose, demand side of things and kind of why this is being practiced. Who were the people called enslaved Turks? Were they actually from what we now call Turkey? How did they come to end up as galley slaves? Um, what was their life like once they were? Who, who are these people? Sure. So the people, you know, who belong to what was really an administrative category of enslaved Turks, they were also just simply called Turks, um, were all men. Um, and they were men who were either captured at sea, or they were purchased at markets, which were, um, you know, located around the Mediterranean basin. Um, they were also purchased at, uh, uh, on the Ottoman Habsburg front. Um, and they ideally made up about a quarter of the rowing force. Um, the rest of the enslaved rowers, actually, well, the, le- the rest of the rowers, rather, on the galleys um, were convicts. Um, and they had been uh, condemned for a whole range of crimes, um, including Protestantism. Um, but they're called Turks, but, you know, actually, um, only some of them came from the, the country we now call Turkey or Anatolia. Um, the preponderance of them did come from the Ottoman Empire, um, especially from um, the part of the Ottoman Empire uh, in Western North Africa uh, that they're sometimes known as the Barbary States and also from Morocco. Um, they were presumed to be Muslim, even though sometimes they ended up being Orthodox Christian or Jewish or pagan. And even some indigenous American chiefs who were sent to the galleys from Canada got subsumed into this category of Turk. In terms of you know what happened to them when they got to a port like Marseille, you know first they had to go through quarantine, um, and then when they disembarked in Marseille. Um, they went through a process of inspection and incorporation. So a specialized doctor had to make sure that uh, a prospective uh, enslaved Turk was young and healthy enough to be a useful rower. A clerk had to register uh, a physical description and personal details. Uh, They would assign each uh, enslaved Turk a particular galley um, at which all had names um, associated with the wonderful, supposedly, attributes of Louis XIV, um, and they gave them a number. A barber shaved um, heads, and um, enslaved Turks were left with a special kind of topknot or tuft of hair 
um, that identified them as a Muslim. Um, they were fitted with leg irons. They were given a uniform. So all these rituals were aimed at transforming people who had a pretty wide variety of backgrounds and origins um, into um, enslaved Turks. And I, I can actually speak to the question of daily life, you know, what, what, what their daily life was like. Um, and it's actually an interesting thing for us to be thinking about right at this moment, because we're, we're preparing a museum exhibition that's related to our book. And so we've been thinking a lot about how to tell the story of enslaved Turks in France um, and in other seaports in the Mediterranean through images and objects, but also to really center their lives and experiences um, and their identities to the extent that we can. Um, so galley slaves, actually, some people um, are surprised to hear this. I was surprised when I first learned about it. They, they actually only spent a few months of the year at sea um, and the rest of the time they were at port. So uh, most of them ended up working on land during that time and they earned a bit of money, which would help them buy food to survive. Um, and during this off season, enslaved Turks would labor at naval arsenals, um, and they would participate in a range of activities, uh, which would include shipbuilding, uh, but also posing for artists who had dockyard studios set up uh, that were devoted to decorating ships and maritime weapons. Um, and this is a really fascinating thing because it essentially meant that the faces and bodies of these enslaved Turks were often depicted on the ships that they were forced to row. So some convicts that Jillian mentioned, you know, including Protestants who were sentenced for heresy, were required to stay on the boats at all times, you know, whether or not they were actually rowing. Others were forced to work in the arsenal, and then a portion of galley slaves were hired out to local businesses in town. And during the heyday of Louis XIV's galley shipbuilding, the French monarchy actually issued a royal edict that required craftsmen in the city of Marseille to train these enslaved rowers in carpentry and caulking. They needed more of this labor force. So other galley slaves had the privilege of setting up shops, um, small kind of stalls uh, alongside the port, and there they could offer services like hairdressing or tooth pulling um, or otherwise peddling small little crafts that they would make uh, and other wares. And so I would say, depending on the time of the year um, and the needs of the Royal Arsenal and the galley fleet, enslaved Terps could participate in any number of these activities. Uh, but they typically did it according to a highly regulated 12-hour workday. Um, and at night, they were forced to sleep under tents on the galleys themselves, uh, chained to their benches in very cramped and really unsanitary conditions. Mm. Thank you both for taking us through sort of how these people got to places like Marseille and what their lives were like there. Um, because some of it does come out through the visual culture, as Meredith, you just mentioned, kind of the bodies being depicted. But a lot of it doesn't come through if we just look at the objects. So that background, I think, is really helpful for then looking at the objects and going, well, what do they actually show? Um, but before we get into some of those details, could we understand a bit better kind of why visual art and embellishment were such a big part of maritime culture at this point? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I would say, first of all, that visual art and embellishment was a huge part of, of royal and aristocratic culture in general during Louis XIV's reign. So it wasn't just restricted to the maritime sphere. And I think, you know, as, as anyone who has been to Versailles can attest, um, Louis XIV was very invested in using art and architecture as forms of propaganda. 
Um, but maritime art was particularly ideal for this uh, because ships traveled, they moved around, and they broadcast a message about French power and grandeur to all different parts of the world. Um, but I would also say that sometimes the monarchy would run into trouble with all of this crazy embellishment um, in the sense that it could compromise the speed or the seaworthiness of a ship. And in fact, this was the case with the flagship of the French royal fleet, which was called the Royal Louis. Um, and that ship is something that we write about in the book. It wasn't a galley, it was a warship, but it was decorated um, on its stern with an image of the Sun King subjugating uh, Esclave Turc, uh, which is very similar to the painting on the ceiling of the Hall of Mirrors. And ultimately, some of this really heavy gilded decoration that had been added to the ship had to be removed. Um, and even after that, it barely participated in combat and it spent most of the time at, at port. So visual art and embellishment was really important, but some kind, sometimes it could compromise functionality. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, some of the images in the book um, really give the idea of when we say embellished, when we say decorated, like this is taken to the nth degree and then some. Like it's really quite striking. Um, and I think perhaps the reason I was so pleased, uh, most pleased to kind of see how much imagery is in the book to really uh, help us understand like just how heavily embellished um, so many of these items are. Given that kind of impetus from the king, and as you said, thinking about places like Versailles, we know this is something that he was particularly invested in. Should we then be thinking about, for example, that flagship galley as being, you know, again, a mainly top-down propaganda monarchical project? Or is that too simplistic? Well, I would say that to some degree, these kind of heavily embellished, you know, warships and galleys uh, on the Mediterranean really were a top-down monarchical project. They are just one that was mostly been overlooked by art historians who have been much more focused on monumental so-called high art produced at the center of the kingdom at Paris and in Versailles rather than on the more ephemeral ship sculpture that was made for the peripheral Mediterranean. And one point that we make in the book is that several of the most famous uh, court artists, um, people like the premier peintre uh, Charles Lebrun, who made the painting on the ceiling of the Hall of Mirrors that inspired this whole project, were simultaneously designing decor for naval uh, vessels, which was then influencing his productions at the Capitol. Um, so, but at the same time, um, you know, there was a, a, a there's a famous Provençal artist like uh, Pierre Puget, uh, who was in charge of the sculpture workshops in Toulon, another Mediterranean port, uh, and he designed both galleys and warships, but also was making um, artworks for Versailles. And one discovery we made about Puget, which sort of complicates our understandings of Louis the Fourteenth era artistic practice is that he used enslaved rowers and convicts to complete two of his commissions in marble that were shipped from the Mediterranean coast and installed at the king's palace. 
at the same time, as I already mentioned, you know, there were a great number of local constituencies in Marseille that were very invested in the royal galleys, and they also had agendas that didn't always match up with those of the crown. Um, one of the most important of these constituencies were the galley officers I've mentioned before. And many of them were, you know, the younger sons of Provençal aristocrats who had deep ties to the Knights of Malta and who had identities as noble warriors and defenders of Christendom that was really tied up with enslaving Muslims. So that's why even as royal interest in Mediterranean galleys were starting to decline, um, men like these were writing and illustrating shipbuilding manuals that were trying to convince the crown to keep building the galleys and buying Turks. And as we show in our book, these manuals don't try to conceal the violence of enslavement. Um, instead, they, they celebrate it um, using images of Turks being whips um, and also an aerial view of a galley that to modern eyes looks a lot like that late 18th century Brooks slave ship that became an emblem of the abolitionist movement. Hmm. Yes, I think the, the images uh, do have a lot of that sensibility, especially to modern eyes, which is quite surprising to kind of turn the page and see. So thank you for explaining the, as you said, multiple constituencies involved there. From your answers to the both of you so far, um, these representations of subjugation uh, to the king are really quite clearly prominent, right? It's on the embellished flagship, but it's really kind of right in the center of one of the main parts of that embellishment. It's on the ceiling in Versailles. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about uh, what we've mentioned briefly, the idea that this is these images are related to the Catholic conqueror idea that the king wants to put about? How, how does forced labor and subjugation fit into this? Sure. So I think I'd say that when the, the French Royal Galley fleet was at its height, uh, that was during the, the 1680s. Um, and that was a moment when Louis XIV was very interested um, in shoring up his Catholic credentials and also in presenting himself as a dominator of infidels not just enslaved Turks or Muslims, but Protestants too. So in the middle of that decade, in 1685, the monarchy revoked the Edict of Nantes, which uh, was a royal edict that had granted religious toleration to Protestants. And he began sentencing them, or the monarchy began sentencing them to the galleys uh, to labor alongside enslaved Turks. And at the same time that royal missionaries were trying to get these Protestants to become Catholic, they were also attempting to evangelize enslaved Turks and to convert them in religious ceremonies that were often open to the public uh, and that became a key part of French royal propaganda. So uh, some of these ceremonies took place in Mediterranean port cities like Marseille, but there were also a number of conversion ceremonies featuring Muslims or enslaved Turks that were held in cathedrals in Paris uh, and in Versailles. And in 16. 80, the crown actually purchased 45 uh, so-called enslaved Moors, who uh, probably had come from West Africa. That term Moor is a little bit, can be geographically a bit vague, but they were probably West African. Um, and they brought them to Versailles to row a model galley on the Grand Canal and to take part in court balls and, and other spectacles. So this, this royal image of Louis XIV as a Catholic conqueror, uh, someone who conquered both bodies and souls, 
um, it wasn't just a coastal phenomenon, but as you just said earlier, you know, in reference to the ceiling of the Hall of Mirrors, it was something that was also really pervasive uh, in the capital too. Hmm. Which is really interesting to think about kind of how the images move from different places, especially where I imagine in Marseille, kind of anyone living there would be familiar with this. Um, whereas in Versailles and Paris, perhaps there are fewer um, enslaved Turks and therefore it's less of a kind of common thing to walk around and see. Uh, but I think I want to ask more about sort of Meredith, something you just mentioned, the kind of shoring up of the image, because in a lot of ways that implies that the image wasn't that strong to begin with or was under threat in some ways. And there's this great sentence in the book, quote, unstable emblems of royal authority, Catholic piety and aristocratic valor to describe representations of enslaved Turks. So Gillian, maybe you can tell us a bit about kind of the ways in which the images um, represent this statement. Sure. I mean, I think one of the reasons we uh, talk about enslaved Turks as unstable emblems goes back to a point I made earlier about the two ways that Louis XIV interacted with Muslims. On the one hand, by renewing treaty agreements with the Ottoman Sultan, and on the other hand, by promoting himself as a great conqueror of infidels. And using that strategy ended up opening up the French king to accusations of hypocrisy, um, especially when he didn't join the Catholic alliance to break the Ottoman siege of Vienna in 1683. Um, and France's Protestant rivals uh, in uh, Britain, the Netherlands, um, the Holy Roman Empire, Germany, were particularly merciless uh, in calling out Louis XIV for being in cahoots with, the, with Muslims. Um, and one of the things that they particularly loved to parody was the epithet uh, that uh, French kings used for themselves as the most Christian kings. So uh, they published pamphlets and other kinds of um, objects that referred to him, that referred to Louis XIV as the most Christian Turk. Um, Getting to the, the question about, you know, the difference uh, or your observation about the difference uh, between this, you know, these emblems of enslaved Turks in, in Marseille versus uh, the capital. Um, I suppose, you know, you're right that actual Muslim rowers were a much more ordinary sight uh, on the Mediterranean coast than they were in Paris. But one of the, you know, the important arguments of our book is that during the reign of Louis XIV, artists were developing a mode of representation that was legible across space, um, even if it was rejected and mocked by some viewers. Mm. Which is really interesting to kind of think about the top-down propaganda project that we mentioned earlier to make something legible across time and space. Speaking of something that was understood more widely, though, um, can we talk a little bit about the part that isn't top down, the part that isn't uh, authorized by the king? In fact, the materials made to mock the king, Gillian, that you just mentioned, um, besides pamphlets, you also talk about in the book medals. Can you tell us about kind of why medals were a method of mocking the king? And to what extent did these medals visually look like ones that the king did approve of? Yes, I can actually, I'll actually um, speak to that. Uh, I would say, first of all, that um, medals were a really fascinating art form in the early modern period. And I think that that kind of fascination and that interest is sometimes lost on contemporary viewers or, or readers today. But they were especially valued as forms of royal propaganda uh, because 
uh, namely because they were small, um, they could circulate really easily, and they could also be made from different metals, you know, different materials like gold or copper, which meant that they could be sold at different price points. Um, and so they could appeal to and spread to a really, really broad, a really diverse audience. Um, they were also really easy to imitate. So the French crown would regularly strike medals uh, to tout Louis XIV's achievements, uh, both on land and at sea. And this was something that his European rivals tried to mock by making satirical versions, uh, satirical medals that looked almost identical to France's royally approved medals. So I think this was actually part of the effectiveness and part of the kind of shock value of these mock medals, uh, and that people looking at them would not initially realize that they weren't the kind of official French version, and that in fact, they were ridiculing rather than celebrating the Sun King. And I'll just, let me just give you an example. Um, if that's just a specific example, which I'll try to, you know, as an art historian, I'll do my best to like visual, help you visualize this image or, or bring it to life. So it was in, uh, during the 1680s, there were a number of different French bombardment campaigns against Algiers. Um, and in 1684, an Algerian ambassador came to Versailles after one of these campaigns and the monarchy produced a royal medal that sort of celebrated not only his visit, but also his very humble, you know, in the French view, his humble apology to Louis XIV for trying to wage war against the crown. And so in this official French medal, you see this Algerian ambassador bowing down to Louis XIV and above it is written the phrase, Africa suplex, or Africa is suppliant. Um, and a few years later, uh, there was a satirical medal that was probably made uh, in Protestant Germany that sought to invert this propaganda. Um, and this time it depicted Louis XIV bowing down before the day of Algiers, the ruler of Algiers, above the phrase that said Gallia suplex, you know, meaning that France um, was the suppliant one, the one who was catering to the North African ruler um, for its own economic and, and political gain. So there were actually quite a lot of anti-Louis XIV medals that were made around this time. Um, and in fact, Louis XIV's famous garden designer, André Le Nôtre, who designed the gardens of Versailles, had a collection of these medals. Um, and there's a story that may be apocryphal, maybe not, um, of Louis XIV and Le Nôtre kind of gathering together at Versailles to look at the garden designer's collection and Lenote at one point saying, oh, sire, look at this one. It's really against us. <laughs> what a great story. Um, I'm glad you mentioned kind of how people saw medals at the time, even though we don't think of it now, because that example and that story, I think help us understand that in a lot of ways, these seem to almost be like meme culture um, or yeah. Photoshopping things. That's a great uh, analogy. Kind of yeah, to create different different ideas of it. So uh, very entertaining to think of sort of what meme culture was like for and against uh, Louis the Fourteenth. But um, I do want to ask about in another aspect of this book that is perhaps less entertaining, uh, though still very relevant, sadly, to the current time, uh, because one of the things that happens in the time period covered by the book is, unfortunately, a pandemic, a big plague um, in Marseille and other places. So could... Uh, Meredith, perhaps, could you tell us what role, um, well, what happened to the enslaved Turks who were in Marseille uh, during the plague? And how did this impact kind of conceptions of the enslaved Turk and uh, visualizations of it in culture and memory? Yeah, sure. So um, this was a, 
the pandemic that you're referring to was the Great Plague of Marseille uh, that hit in 1720. So it was exactly 300 years before our own COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So we ended up thinking about a lot of disturbing parallels between that time and our own. And we actually wrote a bit about these connections uh, in a separate text. Um, But in the most basic sense, I think we would say that enslaved Turks were both blamed for this crisis and also tasked with cleaning it up. Um, And so this Great Plague, it ended up killing nearly half of Marseille's population. It was said to have come from, quote unquote, eastern lands, and galley slaves were promised freedom if they would remove the dead, rotting corpses of plague victims from the city streets. Although, of course, that was a bit illusory because many of them ended up catching the disease and dying themselves. And in the last chapter of our book, we argue that uh, a number of French artists, uh, one of them was named Michel Serre, so a number of artists who represented the plague um, attempted to exaggerate both the sort of presence and the participation of Esclave Turc over other galley slaves who were responsible for this cleanup. Um, and we say that it was because they wanted to stoke fears about the supposedly eastern source of the contagion by placing Esclave Turc front and center, um, and to also kind of stoke anxieties about global commerce, global trade more generally. Um, so Serre, Michel Serre painted two really giant canvases of two prominent areas of Marseille at the height of the pandemic. And uh, it's interesting that these canvases were later brought to Paris and they were put on public view uh, and the public had to pay a small fee to look at these canvases. So in a sense, in a very dark and kind of disturbing sense, images of the plagues did become a kind of form of, of entertainment but one that was really about kind of getting public opinion mobilized around these, these fears and these anxieties. Um, and in reality, uh, French galley officers didn't really want um, too many esclave Turk to be given over to this kind of grim task of cleanup, because as Jillian mentioned earlier, they valued these rowers for different things. So it was really a kind of... Um, imagination or a sort of exaggeration on the part of artists to place them so prominently in these works. Hmm. Unfortunately, disinformation, misinformation, uh, exaggerating fears is quite common, quite quite familiar to today, yes. especially thinking about plague and pandemic. And even just from that one answer, you know, obviously you both have written about this, as you said, um, in addition to the book, it's obviously in more detail in the book. But even just from that brief answer, we can see incredible parallels. Um, And yet this isn't a history that I think a lot of people are particularly aware of. So Gillian, can you help us understand how, when and why this history, the France's history with enslaved Turks retreats from view? Yeah, um, I'll start uh, by by answering the when. Um, in the mid 18th century, in 1748 in particular, the galleys um, were subsumed into the navy, and so the rowing force that had been concentrated in Marseille was then transferred uh, to uh, the Mediterranean port of Toulon and also to the Atlantic port of Brest. And at that point, there were only about 200 enslaved Turks left. Um, and their numbers uh, dwindled uh, to, to nothing over the next uh, three decades. But in terms of the how and why, 
I think that one big reason that France's history of enslaving Turks retreated from view has to do with the country's free soil mythology. And what I mean by that is that, you know, everyone knows that enslaved West Africans were exploited in France's Caribbean colonies, but metropolitan France was supposed to be a land without slaves because according to a really long-standing legal tradition, um, any person who steps foot on French territory goes free. And so I think that a lot of the bound figures and really, you know, common images of, um, you know, of, of enslaved people that we analyze in The Sun King at Sea were assumed to be allegories um, rather than representations of actual people. So, you know, I think the point is that people began forgetting about France's history of enslaving Turks from the 18th century, but actually enslaved Turks never really retreated from view. Um, they were always there, but just kind of hiding in plain sight. Hmm. Which is really interesting to think about kind of how history changes and what stories are and are not told. So thank you for um, taking us through that piece of the book. As a penultimate question, um, we've spoken a bit about the links between this history and today in terms of plague and pandemic. Um, but there were other links uh, between issues then and now in the book around immigration, around religion, and maybe more things we haven't talked about yet around plague and pandemic. So could you both maybe tell us a bit about some of these links? Well, I mean, as we already mentioned, the timing was really pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, we were writing the epilogue to the Sun King at Sea in the summer of 2020. Um, and as we already said, we, we saw a lot of parallels between uh, responses to the COVID-19 pandemic and to the Marseille, you know, to Marseille's Great Plague of 1720. Uh, notably in outbreaks of xenophobic uh, anxiety. Um, but that was also the year of George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement, which saw monuments to Atlantic slavers, you know, tr topple around uh, the world. But, you know, with one minor exception, none of the protests took aim uh, at any of the kind of celebratory images of enslaved Turks that still feature on walls and buildings um, throughout Mediterranean Europe. Um, what, one, one, one exception is um, in uh, Livorno, there's a very famous uh, statue uh, that, that stands at the port called the Quattromori. Um, and there was briefly, um, you know, a protest there to say, like, why are we not, you know, at this moment that we're talking about the legacies of colonialism and the legacies of slavery? How come uh, no one is, you know, uh, saying anything about these really lifelike and disturbing um, renditions of four uh, enslaved uh, rowers from uh, the, the slave prison in Livorno that's still up, um, up today? Um, but, you know, in terms of religion and immigration, um, within France and particularly uh, in places like Marseille that has a really big population that was marked in different ways by uh, the 1962 decolonization of Algeria, there's a discourse about Islam being a foreign element in France 
uh, and French-born citizens with North African ancestry um, being, you know, somehow immigrants foreign to the nation. So, I mean, for us, what, um, the stakes of identifying enslaved Turks in Louis XIV era art is not only in exposing slavery um, that wasn't supposed to exist on the territory of France, but it's also in showing that Muslims have long been uh, Muslims, both you know voluntarily and involuntarily, uh, you know, migrating to France, have long been an integral part of the fabric of France. And I would just add briefly to that that I think it was really interesting to both of us that, you know, we're writing this book in real time as these events that we felt were really connected, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also as Jillian already mentioned, the kind of reckoning, global reckoning that happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement that, you know, on the one hand, you had all of these parallels. On the other, um, the phenomenon of Mediterranean enslavement that we were writing about really was kind of left out of the story, you know, with this exception of the the one protest around the, the Quattro Mori monument, as Jillian already mentioned. And I think even now we sort of end the book with this open question, you know, when will um, Esclav Turk or enslaved Muslims, you know, who don't have a kind of surviving constituency or community that work to memorialize or secure their memory in museums or in websites um, in the same way that the Protestant community of um, descendants of Protestant Huguenots on the galley do have these kinds of places where some of this memory work is done. You know, when when is this going to happen? Um, and just to give one example, the Musée de la Marine in Paris had been closed for a number of years on a massive reinstallation. And Jillian and I were kind of waiting for the reopening and hoping that there would be more attention paid to this uh, historical phenomenon and to this community. And we went to see the reopening in December. And on the one hand, um, there is the uh, installation itself is far more attentive to, for instance, issues of uh, immigration and the kind of crisis in the Mediterranean today. Um, around these issues and the way that that has historical roots. Um, there was a whole uh, small exhibition set up around that. But we also saw one of the principal, one of the really key objects in our book is this um, naval cannon that was cast uh, in the naval arsenal in Toulon, designed by a French artist named Jean Beauvais, uh, who was kind of Pierre Puget's counterpart, but who was making maritime weapons for galleys and warships and who had enslaved Turks pose for him for some of these weapons. And this cannon is actually cast with the head of an enslaved Turk on its knob, or what was called the cascabel, which is the sort of part of the gun, part of the cannon that's used for tying it to a ship's deck. And it's this extremely lifelike, this very disturbing, kind of agonized um, image of this enslaved Turk with the very characteristic top knot, and it's, it's unmistakable. And we had originally seen it in uh, a kind of area uh, that wasn't open to the public in the naval arsenal in Prest. And we had to go through great lengths to get permission to enter this arsenal and to look at this monument and to photograph it. But we were, on the one hand, um, kind of thrilled to see that it had been brought into this very prominent public space within the installation of the Musée de la Marine, 
But at the same time, we were also pretty disappointed to see that there was absolutely no recognition, no acknowledgement in the didactic, the museum label, you know, in the, the wall text and in anywhere else that what we were looking at was the, you know, the cast, an image of an enslaved Turk. Um, the museum label only said, you know, this magnificent canon that was produced during this naval heyday of, of Louis XIV's reign. So I think that's one reason why we really want to try to um, do more kind of public work around this topic and prepare uh, and hopefully be able to um, do a museum exhibition so that we can bring more attention to this subject and also to have the museum exhibition itself focus on letters and documents that are written by some of these uh, enslaved Muslims so that their own voices can be heard. Hmm. Well, on that note, exactly. Um, would you mind each of you telling us a bit about kind of what you're working on now or next now that this book is done? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things is uh, we're continuing, you know, we really did love collaborating together. So we're continuing to work together on this uh, on this museum project. But separately from that, uh, I am also collaborating with another colleague who's based in London at Queen Mary University uh, on a project that explores links between land ownership and enslavement in late 18th century Haiti, when it was the French colony of Saint-Domingue and the Paris art world. So looking at economic links, social networks, uh, material links between these two spheres. And that's going to be a multimedia project. There's going to be a digital component. um, And last summer, we made a short film with the National Gallery in London that explores one aspect or one piece of this story. Mm. Um, yeah, besides uh, collaborating um, with Meredith and another colleague on uh, this museum exhibit, um, I'm working on a book which is called The Money Launderer's Daughter, and it uh, centers on a forced conversion rumor that was circulated by enslaved Turks uh, in late, 18th century, uh, late 17th century Marseille and an actual woman from Tunis who uh, sparked their concern. So it's in part the story of what happened to her, uh, which includes getting captured by Algerian pirates um, during a pretty brief period of time, but it's also uh, a medita- sort of a medita- meditation about, you know, how historians uh, know what we know ab- about the past. Mm. All right. Well, all of those sound like fascinating projects. So thank you for the sneak peeks about them um, and best of luck pursuing them as well. And of course, in the meantime, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Sun King at Sea, Maritime Art and Galley Slavery in Louis XIV's France. Gillian and Meredith, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us, Miranda. Yes. Yeah.